And now, dear Lord, give us the glory of the light of your gospel. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen. Okay, so some of you have probably read the book or seen the movie, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I love it, love it. If you hadn't gotten a chance to read it with your young ones, do it. Discuss the theology that surrounds it. It's a great teaching tool. But you remember the children in the story find a magical entryway through a wardrobe into a mythical land called Narnia. And these children in the story are called sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. But in this land of Narnia, though it's magical, it's frozen, remember? And it's full of these frightened creatures, creatures hiding out without hope. It's a place where there is no peace, there's no joy, there's a land of despair, and it's thoroughly defeated. Soon enough, you learn the cause of the defeat, right? The land was cursed. It was under the influence of the evil white witch. And C.S. Lewis describes the despair of the situation. He says, it was always winter and never Christmas. Isn't that a powerful statement? I mean, look outside today, how terrible did it Would you imagine this all the time and never Christmas? Much like our own world. Narnia needed a redeemer to step in and to restore all things. And then it happens, the breakthrough. Father Christmas arrives with good news of great tidings for Narnia. He says, she, meaning the white witch, has kept me out for a very long time, but her magic is weakening. He goes on to say, uh, Lucy goes on to shiver with excitement and why is she weakening, though, is the question. Because another king is coming to reestablish his reign and righteous rule. A greater king, the true king, is about to arrive, and the curse of the white witch is about over. Jesus, of course, is the coming of the king. In the story, we know him as Aslan. And Father Christmas goes on to say, Aslan is on the move. He's coming. The great lion the son of the emperor beyond the sea has come to set all things right again. A merry Christmas. Long live the true king. My friends, on this second Sunday of Advent, I want to affirm to you that our king has come to set all things right again. Jesus, who is the lion of Judah, the great king, has come to redeem his people, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. And it doesn't have to be always winter in your soul and never Christmas because Jesus has come. Jesus has broken through at last. Glory to God in the highest. He's brought peace on earth and peace between God and man. So the question that we have during Advent is how do we receive this king? How do we properly receive Jesus? And I want to look at chapter 3 of Luke's gospel, verses 1 to 9. If you got your Bibles, please turn there. I, I'd hate to think that I'm misleading you in any way. Uh, please check my notes. But there are four little teachings I want to gather from this. Uh, one is you got to recognize that there is a king, and Jesus is that king. So you recognize, you got to prepare during Advent, preparing your heart. You got to allow yourself to be uprooted and rerooted in the sovereign grace of Jesus. And if you do, 
you'll receive the good news of God in Christ. So recognize, prepare, reroute, and receive. So what we're reading about today in verse chapter 3 is we're reading about John the baptizer out in the wilderness. And it says in verse 3, this is his mission. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the message is that there's got to be a heart change in order to receive the king. Now remember, John's the first prophet in 400 years. There's a long time when no prophet spoke. And he's not only the first prophet, he's the fulfillment of all prophets. He is the greatest prophet who ever lived. And he's coming to take the ancient prophecies and make them complete in his ministry and mission. Look at verse 4, we see that. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, these were written hundreds of years before, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that's John. What is he crying? Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain shall be made low, every crooked place made straight, and even the rough places shall become level ways. And when the heart's ready and the road is prepared, guess what? Verse 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Two things to note there when you receive this king. First of all, this is language of a royal procession. This is language of a preparation for a kingly visitation. We know this because we know history. If you are a Roman citizen, you know that the roads were really good in the city places, but not real good in the country places. If you went between two towns, particularly out there in the hinterlands of the kingdom, you didn't have roads that were worthy of a king's visitation. So what'd you do? You sent out months in advance a planning team. There would be engineers and road graders to do the road work. There would be heralds and ambassadors coming to each city along the procession saying, get ready, your king is coming, your king is coming. There was much preparation to make the road worthy for the king. Now you see what's happening here? John is that ambassador. He's the emissary sent before the king to prepare the way for the king. But he's not talking about grading a highway for a king, is he? He's talking about grading a highway in the heart, about a change of heart, and to make that heart ready to receive the royal king who is Jesus. Getting our hearts right for that arrival. And did you know that the word Advent means coming or arrival, particularly of a king? So Jesus is, of course, the baby born in the major in his first arrival, born in humility, the baby born to die for the sins of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. And Jesus will come again in a second Advent, just like Aslan to come in glory and power and majesty, to set all things right again. The two advents, and we need to prepare. But it's not just any king. Read those words again. Prepare the way for the Lord. Now that's special, because that word there is taken from the proper name of God. You remember Moses meets God, the burning bush, asks who he is. He said, my proper name is Yahweh, the Lord God. And so what we're saying, seeing here is it's not just any king that's coming. It's the Lord God himself in the flesh that we need to prepare for. 
You see, every other person that was called by God to shepherd his people failed in some way. Every act of deliverance was penultimate, but this is going to be ultimate. Remember God sent the law through Moses, but the law wasn't powerful to save the people, was it? God continued to send prophets through the ages to call them back into relationship with the Father, but they didn't save any people either. God sent judges and later kings like David and Solomon to lead and shepherd and guide the people, but they couldn't save the people. No, the great king had to come, the Lord God in the flesh, Yahweh come in the person of Jesus. So how do we, if that's the king, and we're talking about God's visitation, how do we prepare for that king? How do we prepare our hearts? Sometimes I think during Advent, because we're preparing for Christmas, and during Lent, as we prepare for Easter, we get these silly notions that it's all about the superficial things. The things that annoy us or the little quirks that we have, we need to make a covenant, a list, a checklist, and get rid of those things. But that never works, and that's legalism. You know, um, this year I'm going to buy less presents for my kids so that they know how to be humble and thankful and they'll never be materialists. Then what happens? Grandma arrives on Christmas Day with 10,000 presents. <laughs> or you say to yourself, you know, I could really could use to lose about 10 pounds. And so you work really hard at it. And then Christmas comes and all the feasting, you gain 15 back. Why does that checklist never work? Because we're treating the symptoms. We're not diagnosing the real problem. And the real problem is very evident today. The gospel isn't about moralism or behavioral modification. It's about the root cause that Jesus came to deal with. And that's our pride. You see, we really don't like to have a king, do we? Don't like to have a lord. I don't like to be told what to do. I don't like a master watching over me. We want to sit on the throne, and that's our problem. We like to call the shots, be self-reliant, be self-determining. Don't believe me? Look at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowd that came to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Now notice, it would have been one thing to say this to the Pharisees, but this is to the church. These are to people who are spiritual seekers on a Sunday morning. They've come from all over to receive this baptism of repentance, and John says you're a bunch of vipers, a brood of vipers. Can you imagine? So what gives? I mean, can you imagine going to a Billy Graham crusade years ago, and, and the great Pastor Graham, such a nice guy, he opens with a prayer, and then stares you down and calls you a brood of vipers? It would not be a good crusade. So what gives? Well, it goes back to Genesis, right? Remember the serpent, the viper in Genesis? The serpent who, who captivated the son of Adam, or Adam and Eve and made those two people children of the fall or children of the serpent, children of the viper. So what was the temptation that we're referring to, the brood of vipers? It's a temptation to trust in themselves and to doubt God. To trust in themselves and not believe that God has their best interest in mind. Remember how it happened? The serpent comes to Eve and said, did God really say? He plants a seed of doubt. He's basically saying, is God really trustworthy? Are you sure you want that kind of king? 
Is he, is he sovereign? Does he have your best interests in mind? And then he says, look at this beautiful fruit. Certainly you'll not die if you eat of this wonderful thing. Make your own choices. Determine your own fate. Be your own God. He's not trustworthy. Isn't that what happens with Jesus in the temptation? 40 days and 40 nights, the Satan comes to him, the serpent, the ancient one, and says, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, your father can't be trustworthy. You brood of vipers, you offspring of the haughty one, you've listened to the lie of Satan. So the, the problem is not the sin in our lives. The problem is who's sitting on the throne. Martin Luther said this about the Ten Commandments. He said, what's the first commandment? He said, you shall have no other gods but me. He said, that's so important because it's about kingship and authority. He said, what that means is you're to have no greater hope in your life that's greater than God. He said, all of your self-esteem ought to come straight from God. There should be no more satisfaction in your life than that which you can get from God. There should be no more meaning in your life than that which God provides. He said, not people, not approval, not your job, not your spouse or potential spouse, not your children or anything else that you're wishing for at Christmas. When you have those as the primary object of worship, who's not on the throne? God. He said, that's the great commandment, and it's the first commandment. And he said, if you break that one commandment and you sit on the throne, commandments two through ten will be already broken. The problem is the root. So we got to reroute our lives. Look at verse 9. That's what it's talking about. It says that even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, at the pride and the hypocrisy of a people who would say, we've got Abraham as our father, Abraham, our heritage, our history. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Look at that language. It's language of repentance. It's language of a rerouting process, of an uprooting of an old son of Adam life and daughter of Eve life and a rerouting in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And it hurts. It hurts. It's radical stuff. C.S. Lewis talked about his own conversion in this way, and I love this. Please hear this. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He gets the drains right and stops the leaky roof above. And so you kind of knew that these jobs needed doing. But presently, he starts knocking about the house. And it hurts in an abominable way and doesn't seem to make any sense to you. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is this, C.S. Lewis says. He's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing, putting on extra floors, running up towers, making courtyards. And here's the punchline. You thought he was making you into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace for himself. He is the king and intends to come in and live in it himself. Repentance, preparation for the king. He doesn't want a little tiny cottage. He wants a first-class mansion. He wants you to put him back on the throne, to treat him as king, to be uprooted from your old life of the son of Adam and the daughter of Eve and to receive him as your king. You see, kings don't adapt to the roads that are there already. 
the roads must adapt to the king. And so as we're road grading our hearts in this Advent season, we remember to make straight the pathways for God. Allow God to be God and receive your king. And here's the good news, and I'll end with this. We're all sinners. Everybody that came to receive the baptism of John, to receive a new beginning, a cleansing from sin, an uprooting of an old life, and a rerooting in new life, everyone had to be baptized. They all came with issues and problems. And everybody here has an issue and a problem. And, but remember this. It was a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sin. And that was good news. If we would have read a little bit further here, we'll see that some of those people that came were tax collectors. And they felt so dirty and ugly and unworthy of the presence of God. And they, they came for a new beginning to receive the king who is gracious some of those people were soldiers, and they had cheated and defrauded people and perhaps even committed atrocities in war, and yet they came for a new beginning. They came for the grace and mercy of the coming king. God did not come in Jesus as a punishing king, but as a merciful Lord, and he wants to bring his children home. John 1.12 says this, Yet to all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. And in verse 6, we're reminded today, and when the roads are straight, repentance is done, and receiving of king is over, verse 6 says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. My friends, it doesn't have to be always winter and never Christmas. Receive your king afresh. Let him break through your heart yet again to take out whatever idols have accumulated in your heart Every day can be Christmas again. Will you let Jesus be your king? Will you let the Holy Spirit to do the road grading necessary to prepare the way for the king? Repent, find your salvation, and be saved. For your king is good, and he loves you, and he wants to be master over your life, king of kings and lord of lords. Now I'm reminded of the little town of Bethlehem, my favorite Christmas hymn. And there's a prayer in there. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. The glad, great glad tidings tell. Come to us. Abide with us. Our Lord Emmanuel. Come to us, Lord Jesus. Father in heaven, we want our hearts to be ready to prepare for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So come to us today. Fill our hearts with joy. Although it's winter outside, it is Christmas in our hearts, for he has come and will come again to set all things right. Thank you for our King and Redeemer Jesus. In Christ's name.